Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're discussing friendship and how friendship can offer healing and transformation for ourselves and for our world. My guest today is Kate Johnson, an acclaimed teacher, writer, and facilitator. Kate leads programs and retreats, integrating meditation, somatics, social justice, and creativity around the world and online. Kate works with individuals and organizations seeking greater sustainability through the cultivation of wise relationships. She's the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Radical Friendship, Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World. You can find out more about Kate Johnson at her website, katejohnson.com. You can also follow her on social media on Instagram at hello Kate Johnson. Hello, Kate Johnson. Welcome. <laughs> I'm really glad if you could join me today on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So before we dive into our dialogue about friendship and how it can offer healing and transformation, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of present moment awareness of being right here, right now. So let's begin wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just bringing your attention to your body in space. Just feeling your body, whether you're sitting or standing, walking or driving, and in particular feeling where are your feet? What parts of your body are in contact with the surface that supports your weight? And then bringing your attention to the breath and just noticing as you take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, noticing how that air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And just continuing to follow the breath, not changing the natural flow, but just noticing. Here's something to contemplate. From Yogacharya O'Brien's book, A Single Blade of Grass. Spiritual friendship is based on shared values. Shared interests are secondary. A true friend is one who nurtures the soul. To help another materially is useful. To help another emotionally is compassionate. To help another spiritually is love. Once again, Kate Johnson, welcome to the Yoga Hour. It's really delightful to have you on the show to discuss friendship and the importance of friendship in our world. 
and the transformative potential that friendship brings. So what inspired you to write this book at this time? Yeah, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I love to be in conversation around friendship um, and social change. And, um, you know, I started working on this book quite a while ago. um, And it really started as a talk at a conference that um, was about, it was a conference that was a Buddhism and neuroscience and technology conference. And so um, I was asked to give a talk um, and <laughs> I'm not really a neuroscience or technology person, although I'm sure those things are great. Like I'm <laughs> much more of a devotional practice. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, my, um, approach to spirituality tends to be more like on the creative literary end than <laughs> like, you know, on the, yeah. on the neuroscience end of things. However, um, I do think mindfulness and meditation are incredible technologies for working with the mind and heart. Um, Some of the earliest technologies for working with the mind and heart, um, low tech though they may be. And so I talked about mindfulness as a technology that could help us to really um, become aware of implicit bias and to make different choices about how we wanted to show up um, as we relate to people across differences in, you know, our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces um, and the call to action really for that group of people was um, to uh, make that a part of our practice in spiritual communities. Um, and that unless we really took a look, each of us internally at our own biases um, and use the capacity we have as mindfulness practitioners to notice our thoughts and emotions as they arise and be able to um, inquire into whether what we're thinking is true and how we know it's true Um, or whether it's, you know, a conceptual overlay based on our conditioning or, you know, um, family, you know, cultural training uh, and then to make choices that are aligned with our values. And so I did that um, talk and it became a podcast that then a editor from a publishing house picked up and as if I wanted to write a book about that topic, which I didn't actually have much more to say about implicit bias. Like, I'm like, we should do this, you know? Um, and I think that is the realm of, um, you know, neuroscience, uh, you know, around those specific pathways that are, um, you know, the way we create neuro- new neural pathways with awareness um, and how we actually shift at the, at the granular mind level. Um, around uh around bias but i was interested in um a different model for relationship across difference than allyship which is what we were really thinking about a lot of the time it was right around the time that um the movement for black lives was getting energized re-energized um as a in response to some tragic um uh displays of police brutality and um, <clears throat> murderers of black and brown people. And so, um, you know, there was this sense of, oh, uh, you know, this was certainly pre George Floyd, but, um, the, a similar kind of moment where, um, a vast number of people, some of whom hadn't really been directly impacted by police violence in their lives suddenly realized, oh, this is a problem and we want to help and support each other. 
And there's this question of like, how do we do that? And how do we be in relationship across difference and not cause more harm, right? Because we all have areas of unconsciousness. Right. So um, spiritual friendship became a, a um, real interest for that reason, because I was primarily organizing yoga and meditation communities in in service of these social justice and political campaigns. And so it felt like something that was native to our way of thinking about the world, you know, and a way to really concretely draw on principles of awareness and compassion, but to move them into our relationships. And, and I also felt like I wanted to champion the, just the, um, the vast, uh, number of teachings around spiritual friendship and around ethical relationship that are in the Buddha Dharma, because, you know, mostly we hear about mindfulness meditation, which is wonderful and fabulous, but it's a very small part of the you know overall teachings. Most of the teachings I think are really about how do we, um, how do we live together? How do we be good to each other? How do we not harm each other? Um, how do we support each other? Right. Well, it's a lovely book, and it's really delightful to have a chance to talk with you about it. So you begin the book. This is a book about finding your freedom, finding your people, and the possibility that these are actually two parts of one and the same spiritual path. It's a book about friendship. I really loved reading the book and uh, viewing friendship as a uh, with the potential for transformation in our communities. So let's start with what's your definition of friendship? You know, I don't really have a working definition of friendship. I think it's so, um, it's so particular to folks experiences of what they mean by friend. I mean, I think we're in an age where we can, you know, we're starting to move away from this, but where friends could be like the very wide network of people like that, for example, that people are connected with online um, I do think online friendships can be real friendships. Um, but there's, you know, like this kind of like light touch friendship. I think some folks, uh, think about friendship in terms of length of time, you know, how long you've been committed to someone and whether you've known them your whole life or just meeting them. Um, uh, I tend to think about friendship as a quality of relationship and, of um, a, um, a, a relationship in which, um, what the Buddha talked about as metta is is really prominent, right? Where there's a sense of like unconditional friendliness, unconditional positive regard, as the psychologist Carl Rogers said, right? So that like um, a friend is someone who um, we enjoy their company because we genuinely we genuinely want the best for each other, um, and there's a um, an ease and a comfort that comes with that. Yeah. Now you make a differentiation in the book and, and you the title of the book, you, you titled it Radical Friendship and you differentiated the re term radical versus spiritual, spiritual friendship. Mm -hmm. Would mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I didn't mean it to be, you know, it's when you're publishing, like titles are a big thing. And, you know, part of the reason why I started thinking about reframing it anyway was because the publisher thought, and no one would really want to read a book about spiritual friendship, um, but it would be off-putting to off-putting to people who are have been burned by um, organized religion or spiritual practice, feel mistrustful of it. And there are a lot of folks who are in um, the realm of social justice and activism who fall into that camp. You know, who um, for whom, especially when we look at expressions of Eastern spirituality in North America. Um, 
people who feel like these are spiritual spaces where they've been asked to keep their politics outside the door. Mm, And so um, when they read spiritual, they think, oh, it must not be for me because I'm interested in um, justice and change. And these are communities that just want me to accept things as they are, you know, and I think there's a real both and there, but you want to, I mean, the the publisher's argument, I think was a good one. Like we want people to at least open the book and (laughs) they can find themselves there. That was part of it, not to be off-putting to people for whom spirituality isn't a place where they see themselves at home, although the work they be doing, the work they do may be, and the way they live may be profoundly spiritual as I would define it, you know? Um, And in terms of moving us towards liberation. Um, So that's one reason. Another reason I think is that, I think of radical friendship in the most um, simple and straightforward way as a kind of relationship where we commit to showing up for our own and each other's liberation. Um, And I think in a world where there is so much injustice, where there is such deep um, inequity and uh, the sense of isolation and separation that comes with that, that to show up for our own and each other's liberation is a radical act, you know, and it's an act that can be profoundly healing down to the very root of our being and so um yeah I love that uh etymology of the word radical is kind of of or pertaining to the root of things yeah Um, yeah. and that if we address the root (laughs) um root causes for our suffering right it's so much more effective than if we just kind of bat around the branches so um what I understand the Buddha said is that you know friendship is not just a part of the holy life, but actually the entirety of our spiritual practice can be experienced through our relationship with others on the path. Mm-hmm. So it really is a root core practice, not just like a nice to have or, you know, <laughs> can, can, you know, be, you know, can practice with it or without it. Like, I think what he was saying is, oh, no, no, no it's, you, you, you don't get to skip over this one, even if you, if, if it's awkward or annoying. <laughs> you <have to> <laughs> yeah. Stick with it and, you know, find the beauty um, that's also there. Well, you alluded to this a moment ago, and I just wanted to touch on it. So the subtitle of the book, so your book titled Radical Friendship, and the subtitle is Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World. So it's the unjust world, you know, part. And as I was thinking about this and preparing for this conversation, I was remembering that um, my husband and I bought our house in our neighborhood. And at the time we bought it, you know, there was there was no attention that was paid to whatever the history of, you know, documents were in this area. But then later, and I think it was through our realtor, you know, I came across like a, you know, a set of like covenants that basically would have prohibited me as a Mexican-American from buying in this neighborhood. And those were no Uh longer in action, you know, but still that's the history of it. I mean, that's how, you know, that's how this area started. And I know that this, that we are not alone, you know, in our little area um, to have that history. And so, you know, it it results in people being segregated, you know, by race often. Um, And so, um, you know, you talk about how do we do this in an, you know, in an unjust world where there are these things, there is obviously, you know, now that we have cell phones and th- these um, incidents are, have been now for, I don't know how many years, what, 10 or 15 years been documenting, you know, how unsafe it is, for example, for a person of color, you know, to do so many things that were invisible to us before. I mean, we've seen so many examples, right, you know, bird watching in Central Park, um, all of the, you know, traffic, I mean, everything that we've seen, you know, so obviously it is that there is this injustice in the world. So 
where where do you see you know friendship being able to build those bridges you know in this society as you say it's an unjust world yeah oh, well i'm really um first of all sorry to hear about you know I, I imagine that was quite a shock to discover that you know this is a space where you wouldn't have been welcome and you know um even you know i'm not sure about your neighborhood but even for neighborhoods where redlining is no longer a active practice um like it's illegal, but there are still ways in which like, um, you know, realtors and neighborhood associations, you know, keep um, out people who they don't trust or don't belong enough, you know? Um, um, yeah. And it's also interesting too, to see like the places where um, you know, identities that were once unacceptable kind of cross the line into being acceptable um, mm -hmm. and how awkward that is for those of us who, you know, it's like the line crosses us, you know what I mean? Like we don't cross the line, but suddenly <laughs> like I'm the right kind of person of color that can buy in this neighborhood, right? But like, you know, someone who's darker skin than me in my same family might not be able to, for example. So it's just, it really is such, you know, heartbreaking and like um, difficult territory. And so I just, you know, I when you said that, I was just, I really felt that moment of like discovering that, oh, I might, I might have been, un I might have been unwelcome here at a particular history, like just unable, unable to buy the house at a particular time. But, but even though I'm legally able to buy it, like I may or may not be welcomed here. And I think that's one, you know, when we talk about like, how does friendship, um, you know, heal this legacy of um, not just like, um, legally imposed but you know socially and culturally imposed separation and inequality and um i think one of the things is to that became clear to me as i worked on this book and just reflected on my own experience and talked to other practitioners and students is that um when um, those of us who have experienced oppression on the basis of you know one of more of our identities or lived experiences like it impacts our um, the way we feel about ourselves. It impacts our sense of belonging. It impacts um, you know the kind of vigilance that we have to um, employ to keep safe as we enter into new relationships or go into new neighborhoods or you know start at a new school. Um, there's this whole kind of level of holding, you know, even physiologically, that. Um, I think is antithetical to, you know, the sense of what we talked about earlier, friendship, like being able to be in a sense of trust, being unburdened, being able to really feel into our own and our other people's best qualities. Like if we're um, been kind of forced into a state of fear, um, that is not just like an anxiety of something that might happen, but as you said, like there's all these kind of um, instances of, um, just like real violence that we see in person, that we see replicated, you know, technology, um, these digital recordings. And um, so I think that um, I think that uh, one aspect of spiritual friendship is really making friends with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that means tending to the parts of us that have been um, marginalized by society that we, you know, marginalized even in ourselves, because that's, you know, how could we not internalize those forces to some degree? Mm -hmm. um, 
I think it means um, understanding that relationships take time and they may take extra time for those of us who haven't been able to trust, um, you know, who haven't grown up in a world that feels safe to us. Mm -hmm. um, and really to make space for that process. Mm -hmm. And then I think when it comes to um, coming together in a way that we can actually start to transform some of these forces at a societal level, um, you know, to demand a just healthcare system, to end redlining, to, you know, provide um, you know, a, a high quality public education for all, to end, you know, mass incarceration of black and brown people. These are things that are going to take a mass social movement. Like, it's not, you know, we, we really have to turn the tide of awareness for all of us and and propel those of us who are able to into wise action, whether it's advocacy, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's direct action, you know, and in order to build a mass movement, we really need to have strong relationships that can sustain over time. Right. And I think what we've seen in some of, you know, um, the movements that have, have gained us like incredible, you know, um, advances in our civil rights um but ha um but haven't been able to kind of keep those keep that momentum over the long haul i think often the the breakdown happens at the level of relationship um you know it's power dynamics within organizations it's um you know hierarchy and control and domination <laughs> It's um, having making mistakes and not knowing how to say sorry. It's um, experiencing misalignment and not knowing how to repair. And so if we don't have those interpersonal relational skills, we can't actually build mass movements that can sustain themselves over the long haul. And so that's another place I think radical friendship really comes into play when we talk about social change. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think that's a that's a great point. One of the quotes that I pulled out, you know, from the book, which you just you just kind of, you know, mentioned part of meditation is making friends with yourself meditation yeah. is making friends with yourself and i thought that that you know again starting with ourselves which you also include in the title of the book you know friendship with yourself um would you just comment a bit more about that making friends with ourselves and um and and our ability to have uh, self-compassion which sometimes sometimes my own inner dialogue when i listen to it it's so much harsher than i would think about whatever was happening to, for example, a friend of mine, I would never say to them the things I may hear myself say inside my own head to myself. Yeah. 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 Oh gosh. I think it's a lifelong practice, you know? Um, there's a lot of money spent on cultivating, you know, investing in our sense that there's something wrong with us and that we're not okay. Um, because when there, we feel that there's something wrong with us and we're not okay, um, we spend more money trying to get okay, you know, um, right. and trying to like, you know, um, arrange our external conditions so that nobody knows that we don't really like ourselves. Um, and, um, you <laughs> and know. Don't post any of that stuff on social media. Nobody who's having a bad day goes and posts that on social media. You know, it's always yeah. highlights, you know. Totally. And that's nice to see that's, you know, inspiring, you know, beauty and, you know, like, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's not reflective of, you know, daily reality. Certainly it's not fair for us to judge um, our insides against someone else's outsides. 
Absolutely. Um, But I think, um, so like, you know, it's no wonder that, you know, there's um, an epidemic of like, you know, self-hatred and perfectionism and kind of self-aggression in that way. And, um, and that's really the water that we're swimming in. And so that's why I said like, oh, I think it's going to be a lifelong practice because we're in a conditions that will always, you know, if we're thinking about like driving a car, we're in conditions that will always call, cause the car to be a right. You know, we're always going to have to be pulling back onto the center of the road of like loving ourselves um, in a world that doesn't always say that, you know, that, that doesn't always value all of us and we'll never value all of us all our lives. You know, I think that's the thing. It's like some of, some of it is, you know, due to, um, you know, homophobia and transphobia and, you know, racism and misogyny, you know, things that are less um, like conditions that are less likely to change over time. Um, Some of it is like ageism and ableism, which really shocks, you know, us as we get older or our health circumstances change, right? Like that to find that a certain part of our lives, you know, um, suddenly society doesn't see a value for us anymore. And suddenly we don't have, you know, not seen as having worth, um, and so um, we're always going to need to um, love ourselves harder than the forces around us say, you know, we don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think part of it is really having the confidence, like reminding ourselves and in friendship, reminding each other that it is possible to cultivate a mind that we actually like, you know it is it's possible to like wake up in the morning and feel all right with ourselves. You know? mm-hmm. um, and it sounds so simple, but it's such a beautiful freedom. And um, I think that's something that in friendship we can do like, Oh yeah. Like we're all working on it, but there's nothing wrong with you, babe. You know, <laughs> like you're good. <laughs> I, love you. I love you just the way you are, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. As a reminder to our listeners, today my guest on the Yoga Hour is Kate Johnson, who's the author of the book we're discussing today, Radical Friendship, Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World. You can find out more about Kate and her programs on her website, katejohnson.com, and you can follow her on Instagram at hellokatejohnson. We will publish uh, the link to her website on our webpage at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us through that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our, our mailing list. Kate, just in passing there, you did mention that um, one of the norms of the dominant cultural paradigm, uh, it, actually you had several of them, and it was just a really interesting read for me to just think about you know, how, how true that has been in my own experience. And you describe perfectionism as one of those norms and how it contributes to what we've been talking about, our inner critic. You have a story in the book where you confront your own inner critic. Would you share that with listeners? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, this was a experience that I had um, when I was on a three month silent retreat uh, at a meditation center in Massachusetts. And um, I was really you know, in a time in my spiritual practice where I was, um, <laughs> I would say like rigid bordering on like fundamentalist about like how I approach the practice. 
um, you know, as like young energetic people can get, you know what I mean? I was just like, this is how it's done following this, you know, the, um, the, uh, schedule to the letter, like very high, like energetic practice all day long, never sitting or, you know, never lying down, like always, you know, sitting upright, like adding an extra, you know, we, we were in a center where we didn't, um, you know, obviously talk, but also there was like no reading, no writing. It was just meditation. And somehow I thought it was necessary to add an extra, <laughs> extra session. Like I get up extra early to get into the hall before anyone else did. So obviously I had some, you know, issues, but I was, <laughs> I really wanted to be free, you know? And I thought the way that that happened is to work harder and working harder was something that had really worked for me in other areas of my life. You know, like I had to work harder to get into the good schools. I had to work harder to get, you know, teachers to see me and to see that I was intelligent. And I had to establish that very early on so that I didn't get left behind, you know? So working harder had always been like my superpower. And um, I was trying to apply it in this space where, you know, I learned the hard way. It didn't totally, um, it worked that way. Um, and how I learned that was that I, um, I was getting more and more tired and kind of more and more wound up. And you know how it is when you're practicing and you're using too much tension. It's like squeezing a full tube of toothpaste. It just like squeezes the thoughts out and then I would get tighter and tighter. So, you know, obviously this is not sustainable. And, but I was getting more and more aware of the subtle thoughts that were happening in my mind. And there was one day where I was rounding the corner in the coat room from so there's a meditation hall and then you kind of go through this long coat room and then out into the hall to go to the dining hall and I had gotten up and was mindfully walking and noting you know my thoughts and body sensations and I remember as I rounded the corner um into the hallway from this this uh, coat room I heard in my mind the thought not good enough mm. I was like huh I was like that's so interesting because I <laughs> like that's interesting I've been you know I added two extra meditation periods I didn't take a nap I did walking meditation like you know how I was like oh, I didn't know that and then I just kept hearing it like as you know dozen more times as I moved just from that coat room to my my little room where I was staying you know just I thought about getting a tea and you know um the voice had a comment like, oh, not hardcore enough. You know, why do you need tea? Like, just get some hot water, you know? It's just like, it's just, you know, everything. Like, this running kind of commentary. Um, and I, so I, um, and I realized that every time I heard one of those comments from from that part of my mind, it felt like getting a prick, like a little, you know, they'd say like death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, that's how it felt. Like, I get, and I, and I, I hadn't realized, um, that train of thought and the impact that it was having. But once I did, I talked to my teacher um, on the retreat and who happened to be uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the elders in our, my tradition and in the States. And um, we joked about it and he encouraged me to really bring a sense of humor to it and to um, give this, part of my mind and nickname, uh, which we decided was going to be Jab of the Hut because he's kind of jabbing <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And, um, and to relate, to, to see what I could do to make friends with this aspect of my mind, you know, to like recognize that this is a um, mental habit pattern that served me in many ways that um, 
it wasn't actually going to be possible for me to shut it out or like abject it because it was so strong. But if I could include it in my practice and just say to Jabba when it showed up, like, hey, Jabba, you know, like, actually, we're just going to sit down and meditate here. Let me take you into my lap. And this is meta. This is how we do it. You know, <laughs> you know, just really treating it like this, you know, kind of um, childlike part that didn't really know that was trying so hard to help me and didn't know that it was okay to relax and this was no longer helpful. Um, wow. So, it, you know, what was interesting is that it did, um, you know, it never completely goes away or maybe it does for some people, but um, definitely my relationship to it changed. And as that happened, that voice comes up less frequently. And when it does, I'm more likely to be able to notice it and to, have you know a meaningful loving dialogue with it um but you know I I think what was helpful for me upon reflection as I was writing the book is that um you know so often we experience um the impacts of systemic oppression as personal or interpersonal like we experience it as self-hatred, we experience it as perfectionism, we experience it as, you know, not feeling anything's you know, good enough or that if we make a mistake that we are a mistake um, or we can experience it in an interpersonal way, like, oh, this person just doesn't like me or, you know, I just don't belong anywhere. Um, and so I think part of our practice can be to notice that the realm where it's showing up, like as a relationship with ourselves or relationship with others, but also to ask ourselves, you know, does this, does this, suffering that I'm experiencing have a systemic root, mm -hmm. you know, and in that, and, and if it does, then to be able to um, not identify with it in a way like where, oh my gosh, I'm such a perfectionist. What's wrong with me? You know, it can be another way to berate ourselves. Just be like, oh, perfectionism is in me because it's in the air that I breathe. It's in the water that I swim in. And it's not my fault for adopting those behaviors or those mental habits but now that I'm intentionally caring for my mind and heart, it's my responsibility, you know, and I want to be a good steward for this mind and heart and be friends with myself. So, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to take care of this, yeah. this part of me that needs love. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I thought it was such a great example of what you're talking about in the title of radical friendship with ourselves. So <clears throat> You begin the first chapter of the book with a quote from, and I'm, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, is it the Mitta Sutta? Mitta Sutta. Mitta yeah. Sutta. Um, which, which I loved. So I wanted to go ahead and bring that into, into our dialogue because you built um, the seven um, aspects of the book are around this quote. So here it is. Monks, a friend endowed with seven qualities is worth associating with. Which seven? They give what is hard to give. They do what is hard to do. They endure what is hard to endure. They reveal their secrets to you. They keep your secrets. When mis misfortunes strike, they don't abandon you. When you're down and out, they don't look down on you. A friend endowed with these seven qualities is worth associating with. I just love that. I thought it was just really beautiful. And I also really appreciated mm. the right, your response that you write about in the book. You write, I remember that, that when you first heard these words, I instantly knew three things. I wanted to be that kind of friend. 
I wanted to have that kind of friend, nothing in my experience or education had adequately prepared me for either of those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so would you say more about that? What further preparation <laughs> do you feel that you needed in order to be or to have that kind, that kind of friend? I mean, it's, it's just really inspiring list of qualities. And, and obviously there's so much in the book we won't be able to get into, but that's kind of the overview. You talk about each of those qualities in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the the backbone of the book. Um, and there was something that made me feel really um, calm and in integrity about having that 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 you know, ancient time honored teaching as a structure. You know, um, I, even though um, yeah, it's kind of a really like old school way of organizing a book, like you know, doing a close reading of this you know one text what would have prepared me to be that kind of friend and to have that yeah. kind of friend? Yeah. What's coming up for me in this moment is that to give and to receive love is, um, feels like the point in some ways of, you know, friendship and of like our, our big lesson in this realm. Right. Um, I'm sure there's many ways, you know, we could talk about that, but that's, you know, certainly just to be personal in my own lifetime, I feel like that's the, the um, kind of big life lesson, big life challenge. It's like, how do I give and receive all the love that I need and all the love that I have? Yeah. Um, there's also, I, I experience a tremendous amount of vulnerability in attempting that, you know? Right. And so I think um, maybe something that might've prepared me to be that kind of friend and have that kind of friend would have been a training to help me work with fear because it is so, um, so scary to extend ourselves, you know, to another human being, not knowing if they're going to extend back, you know? Right. <laughs> and it is so scary to even, even, mm, be honest with ourselves and other people about the longing we have to connect, you know, and that we actually do need other people um, and that we can't actually do this life alone and we don't want to. Right. Um, and, and then it's also tremendously vulnerable to be loved, you know, like to really feel how good it feels to, <laughs> um, to, you know, have someone be joyful when we're joyful and celebrate, you know, all of who we are, you know, the, the good, the bad, the weird, you know? Right. So um, I think that, and I think that, you know, maybe, you know, as I think about the, the different chapters in the book and the way that um, the Buddha takes us through, you know, practices around generosity and um, wise effort and, you know, speaking truthfully and listening with compassion and, um, finding forgiveness, you know, all these are ways to like, um, I guess I thought I had like, like, oh, I wonder if these are just like different practices for being able to um, work with fear, to attend to the parts of us that have been harmed when they've been harmed and to be ready to love again. Anyway, you know, even more when we're in a world where relationships do cause suffering we know that you know there's no no way we can be close to someone and not eventually have them hurt us or we hurt them or both you know right and so um you know what what are the 
the practices, what are the supports that allow us to boldly love anyway, even though these are the conditions we find ourselves in. I think that's, that's the heart of it for me. Mm -hmm. Great answer. And thank you for not just saying the whole book is your answer. (laughs) Because it occurred to me when I was writing the question, it's like it kind of is, you know, the whole book is the answer, you know, to that to that question. So as we've been talking about and the quote that I just gave mentions, there's seven qualities that you talk about in the book. And obviously, we don't have time to talk about all seven. But the first one, um, I thought, give what is hard to give. That's the first the first quality of of uh, a friend. What does that mean to you? Give what is hard to give. Um, well, I, certainly this is a you know, principle of generosity can be really broadly applied. When I thought about what it meant in my life and when I was writing this chapter, I really thought about the, um, the top three kind of hard to gives for me, which are, um, uh, time. It's hard to give time, you know, where, where I feel like I never have enough. <laughs> I'm always running out of it, you know, um, attention. Uh, you know, another, um, I mean, we think spoke briefly about friendships and social media earlier. And it, I, that's something that I find really staggering is to see the way that um, our interaction with media has um, uh, profoundly impacted our ability to pay attention to one thing for right. a sustained period of time, let alone another person. You know? <laughs> let alone <laughs> another person who's having a difficult day. You know, it's just like... <laughs> So attention, uh, sustaining attention. And then, um, yeah, I talked about giving unconditional love. Um, oh, I think I talked about money too, which I, um, it's funny that I didn't remember that moment. But um, yeah, the giving of resources, um, which I know there have been times in communities where like money is a kind of thing that you don't talk about and you never lend to friends and whatever. But um, I think as we start to think about um, the kinds of friendships that can dismantle the societal separations that don't serve us, you know, redistributing wealth, I think is something we have to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book, one of the stories uh, that you tell is about your uh, time with your bonus kid, Purple. Would you yeah. share uh, your story about the revelation you had about giving time to that relationship? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it was new in my relationship with her, um, just moved to Philadelphia to be with purple and her dad. And, um, he was on a business trip. I was getting her to school for the first time by myself and I timed it and I really didn't want to be late because, you know, um, that's like the shame of all parents is to get your kid late to school. And (laughs) so I was experiencing that for the first time and just, you know, really wanting to do it right. And, um, uh, she, um, I don't remember, you know, the details of that morning, but I just remember it was like, everything took longer. You know, she wouldn't wear, I remember the socks, like she wouldn't wear the socks that I had taken out because she said they made her feet feel weird and they looked like Harry Potter socks. And so then I was trying to find some other socks that she could wear and, you know, we walked me on the street and she wanted to stop and tell me the names of each of the flowers and stuff, which we do, we did when we just took walks for pleasure, but this is getting to school. And then, you know, then we, she wanted to go down this path where it's kind of like an alley, but no, um, no, um, cars can go there. So it's a nice path to walk on to get to her school. 
Um, but she wanted to pretend that there was a, a magic door there that had a password. And I was just like, I just plowed through it because <laughs> and, you know, I was just like, we don't have time for this. And then I, she, I noticed she wasn't locked with me. And I looked back and she was just standing there, looking at me kind of horrified. And <laughs> you just walked through my magic door and um without the password yeah, just, yeah and I just like kind of went back and we, you know I tickled her a little bit and we, we kept walking but I just um I, I can't always be this way you know with parents but I knew that that day especially being the first time that I was getting her to school by herself that it was a transition for both of us and the most important thing was actually attending to our relationship and that if she was five minutes late and I had to go get her a late pass from the, the office I would survive that shame, you know, but what I would, but, you know, that being, you bring her to school happy and feeling connected felt like the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because I was just talking to um, my current partner this morning about um, work. I've been, I've been sick on and off a lot over the last couple of months, I think. Um, a lot of people have, you know, as far, as far as I've heard, and whether it's that I have a kid in daycare, or, you know, I'm like, oh, do I have long COVID? I don't know, but I, I've had a hard time kind of like um, being productive at the level that I had been before. And, um, and I'm also okay. Like, I'm good. It's just, I can't, um, I'm finding I can't work very fast. And so we were talking about um, what if we just made slow work like a thing and that, you know, <laughs> It, it rather than seeing the amount of time that I have, the amount of activities that I have to do and trying to cram them into that time, um, which I'm finding just gives me a lot of anxiety. Like, what if I'm just like, hey, this these are things that I have to do. This is the amount of time that I have. Um, let's see where I get to. And like that it's okay to go slow. It's okay to write this program description slow. It's okay to get back to this email slow. Mm-hmm. Um uh and that that's a way I can be generous and friendly with myself, you know, and my current capacity, which may, may improve, may not, you know, and maybe it's not such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So another one of the qualities that's on the list is about secrets and telling a friend tells their secrets. So why is it important to open up and tell our secrets in radical friendship? Um, well, I think I Specifically, you know, the, the Buddha's not super specific about this one. He says, you know, they tell you their secrets. I read this as not just telling, you know, the details of our intimate lives, which I think is important, right? Like, to, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, I think real friendships include discussions of money. I think real friends talk about sex. I think real friends um, talk about power, you know, um, uh, and politics, you know, um, things that I think you know, at least in my mother's generation, she talked, you know, she, she <laughs> talks about, they, they just stayed away from these topics, you know, um, no one knew how much money anybody else had and how they got it. And, you know, <laughs> I think that like, so that's part of it, I think is just being able to be, um, but because what happens, you know, to use money as an example is like, then everybody ends up thinking they're middle class, which we actually know statistically, like that's really not true. Like then the wide range of people and in income who think they're middle class is kind of heartbreaking. Um, and so um, how we know what needs to change if we don't know what, what, what's actually real. Um, so that's part of it. I thought that when I thought about um, 
telling secrets, I thought about the um, need to expose injustices and expose societal truths that need to change. And um, I still think this is important. I really appreciate that since this book has come out and even before, you know, there have been, there's been some really interest, like important and um, meaningful um, reconsiderations of what, you know, we sometimes call cancel culture. Um, I hate to use that now because it's been so co-opted, but like, you know, the practice on the left of like, um, being kind of brutal with each other when it comes to, um, you know, having the most nuanced and current analysis of using exactly the right terminology, of, you know, like that, that like, um, you know, making a mistake in syntax can really, you know, get people to turn on you, you know, and that, um, uh, and then we, can, we all have to try our best, you know, and also, um, not treat each other like we're disposable. So I don't mean that in terms of like telling, telling secrets and exposing societal truths need to change is like, you know, um, going after people who make small, you know, mistakes or like, you know, the call out, um, uh, in, ways that are um, like divisive or dehumanizing. Yeah. But I do mean that, um, you know, in, in families, in workplaces, in places of higher education, um, in neighborhoods, like when we've experienced injustice, I think it's important to let people know. Um, and I think that when we are in a position of power, like if I'm a parent, if I'm an employer, if I'm, um, you know, a colleague and someone lets me know that they've experienced injustice, you know, either in relationship with me or in the institution that I'm a part of, my goal is to think about that person who's coming forward with their story as someone who is coming forward in an act of radical friendship who is saying like right something happened here that didn't feel right and i want us to make this right i want us to look at this together um as opposed to making that person who comes forward the problem which i think happens so often in communities like if you if you say that there's a problem then you're the problem you know <laughs> instead of being <laughs> like really hey, true. maybe maybe there's something there for us to look at and that this is a way for us to kind of collectively grow um yeah, yeah. Really, really important, I think. <clears throat> well, unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time together, and I always like at the end to give a chance. So what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Mm. Um, well, I'll say that in this book, and I think in the Buddhist teachings in general, the approach, I'll just speak from my understanding of the Buddhist path, like we um, are interested in looking at suffering because the view is if we really understand how we get caught, then we can understand how to get free. Right? So, um, and I think that the, in this book,
Um, I certainly explore many personal ways that I've gotten caught in friendships and, and, you know, ways that folks get caught in general in friendships, but it's with the intention to um, illuminate the path to freedom um, and um, what I'd love to say is that, you know, yeah, not only is it possible for us to um, cultivate minds and hearts that we feel really good about, that we really feel at home in and um, at ease inside of and that we like, you know, um, and it's also possible to like ourselves in relationship. It's possible to be all of who we are and, you know, beautiful and awkward and messy and wise, you know, and to have that, um, to have who we are be accepted and be celebrated, you know, and that um, if you're still looking for a friend like that, you know, please keep being who you are and keep going. Mm. Um, and that part of how we find those friends is that we become those friends for other people, you know? And so it's possible to really be in relationship where we, you know, um, don't need someone to be just like us to love them and where we can really, you know, show with our words and our actions that, um, who someone is is okay with us and that we we wanna show up for them um and show up for their freedom and um that that's part of what makes life beautiful and meaningful mm -hmm. absolutely for listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Kate Johnson. She's the author of the book we've been discussing, Radical Friendship, Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World. Her website is katejohnson.com, and you can follow her on Instagram at hellokatejohnson. Those links will be on our webpage at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Kate Johnson, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. We hope you'll join us, listeners, for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. We offer daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoon at 4, and on Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. We also offer a Sunday satsang, a gathering of truth seekers at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. There's another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of this program, which is the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. You can find out more about many classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment by going to their website, csecenter.org. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a Kriya Meditation Center in San Jose, California, and online. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.